Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. For today's episode, I'm joined by friends of the show, Berto and Max, to review Andre Overdahl's first English-language horror film, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which follows father and son morticians who uncover increasingly disturbing clues as to a Jane Doe corpse's mysterious past. Berto and Max, welcome to the show, guys. What's happening? What's going on, man? Nothing much. I'm excited to talk about Autopsy of Jane Doe with you guys and to kind of just hear what you guys think, because this is one of those movies that has basically lived on Netflix for the last few years, and... I feel like it's so readily available and yet I don't hear a lot of people talk about it or kind of like recommend it. So I'm interested to hear what your guys' thoughts on it were because it's definitely not the sort of big budget horror movie that I think a lot of kind of like mainstream or very accessible horror movies have. But at the same time, I feel like this is a pretty great intro to horror movie for people that aren't necessarily like the biggest horror fans. So Max, I'm interested because you and I have spoken before about how you kind of are getting more into horror um, and just kind of like, how did you feel about the autopsy of Jane Doe coming into it? Uh, this is actually the second time. Well, Oh, perfect. This is the first time I finished it. Uh, I got halfway through it and then for whatever reason, I didn't, I didn't finish watching it or ran mm-hmm. out of time or whatever. But um, I think this is a good in between um, as far as budget is concerned from I Trapped the Devil, which we talked about last week, and then The Ritual, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, they definitely had a lot more special effects, and I think a lot more money went into this one, but it was still a pretty pretty tight movie. You know, like it doesn't seem like they spent a lot of money, um, especially with kind of the, the cast they had. Um, but I thought it was great. I thought great twist. Um, definitely would watch it again and, and or recommend it. How about you, Berta? I was on the opposite side. Yeah, I, I I wasn't a fan of it. I mean, to think about it now that if they had like a small budget, I guess it was pretty good. But the movie itself, I wasn't crazy about it. It just felt to me like another hunting movie. Like it just like it was nothing crazy about it. Like I don't know. I wish I there was more to it. Like they had like they had a lot of like jump scare kind of moments, but at the same time, I felt like it was almost predictable to me at least. Mm. I was I wasn't a fan of it. So for me, the reason I think that this movie is very approachable for a lot of people is that the setup is very familiar and it's very kind of just something that you're used to. Like you said, Berto, it is very much kind of this straightforward, traditional haunting movie. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, and it does have jump scares in it, but at the same time, I think that I definitely appreciated more on a rewatch, just sort of not only just the atmosphere, but how much they're able to do with so little. Because like yeah. Max said, it is very much this more tightly constricted kind of environment. And in a lot of ways, it's a single location movie, which is kind of like one of my favorite subgenres in that there's a couple of exterior shots, but the entire movie takes place in this one location, which is the underground, the morgue, yeah. basically. And kind of just seeing everything unfold in such a limited capacity or just being restricted to this one location kind of forces the location itself to become a character in a kind of cool way in that if you can't make that location interesting, then yeah, people are going to get halfway through like Max did the first time and not finish it. Yeah. I, I personally liked the location. I thought it gave me like a, like a shining vibe kind of like it's very mm-hmm. old. Weren't like, it was like a very old building, like at least the interior looked like, and it was just kind of like them working in this basement, which was also creepy as hell. 
But yeah. um, I, I really like the like the design and the set. I thought it was kind of cool that it has this really like old vibe and it's very like grimy looking morgue plays that I just wouldn't want to be working there for sure. <laughs> it kind of felt like a blast from the past in a lot of ways because I get what you mean. It does feel very dated. Yeah. And I think the contrast between the building being portrayed as being kind of old mm-hmm. is indicative of kind of like that profession. And we'll get into it more with the characters later, but that's a big point of contention between the two characters, uh, Tommy and Austin in that like the son wants to get out of this very antiquated profession, but he feels like he's trapped there. Uh, Max, what did you think of the single location storytelling? Did you think it was too limiting or do you think that uh, Andre, the director was really good at kind of like getting the most out of that? Yeah, I think he, he, he squeezed every drop out of it as he could out of it. And then, um, you know, you're, you, you mentioned the, um, you know, how old it is. And I think it's a really interesting, uh, parallel to what we later figure out, you know, who Jane Doe is, um, mm-hmm. where she is, you know, old. Um, but then she keeps kind of build like getting more or less, uh, remodeled. And so, I think in the beginning, uh, Austin was talking to his girlfriend, kind of explaining the building. She's like, you know, why do you work here? And it's a family building. And, and we take, we took this old building and we keep bringing it up to the modern day. Um, and so I thought there's a maybe unintentional parallel there. And then seeing the outside of the building and then some of the hallways, interiors, definitely, uh, very old. And, and then you have this brand new, scientific, uh, pretty modern, um, autopsy room. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like you have, it, it was, there's a nice contrast between it and, uh, actually this is more for Berto, uh, Berto, the, the, the morgue reminded me of CIA, reminded me of, of campus oh. where, <laughs> yeah. where he had, um, so real quick, Jay, I know this is totally irrelevant, but our college, our college used to be, uh, used to be a was a monastery, and so yeah. they the school bought it, and the bottom floor was actually the morgue, and so oh, yeah, and so it was super creepy in one of our test kitchens where we took um, I think our second term or some practical test was in the morgue, and so they just retrofitted where they held the bodies, and they just put a stove <laughs> and refrigerators there, and so there's this oh man yeah, and so I. <laughs> I felt a strange connection to, to that building. Yeah. So like, oh, that's a lot like my school. <laughs> now that I think about it, yeah, it has yeah. those vibes. Yeah, and that's it's, just awesome. so people, just so people don't get confused, the CIA is the Culinary Institute of America. Yeah, like not, not the government I organization. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't have feds on this show, so mm, it's all yeah. good. <laughs> that you know. Of. Um, that's yeah. it. Yeah, that that's I know. <laughs> that's a great. Uh, that's cool though. That's one of those things that I think. It, I assume it helped kind of like engross you more kind of building a sense of familiarity right. with a yeah. setting like that, which is awesome. I always love finding in movies, not, not this one particularly, but just movies in general when you can kind of like find little things that you can connect to because then it gives you different meaning right. and a different overall connection to whatever movie you're watching. Um, mm. But in introducing the morgue at the very beginning, I think one of my favorite sequences is just the one where we're basically walked through the morgue there's that long tracking shot that kind of is walking down the hallways of the morgue and we see the different rooms. And then it also highlights a lot of the different kind of like locales basically that we come back to where we see the incinerator 
we see the office, but then we also see that mirror that's on the wall um, or that's in the corner of the ceiling, Mm -hmm. that kind of that reflective mirror that shows you around the corner. And I love how within the first five minutes, we are given the entire perimeter and area basically of the morgue. And just in that kind of like walkthrough with no interactions between characters and whatnot, it really kind of just captures the isolating nature of the morgue because one of the things that I connected this movie to, which I don't think there's any side-by-side comparisons, but this idea that like that movie, The Thing, have you seen that, Max? Mm-mm. John Carpenter's The Thing. It's yeah. about a, it's a movie where this uh, research team is basically stranded in a research facility out in the Arctic and there's like a monster inside that tries to get them. But Berto, would you say that there's any similarities in the sense that it's very much this singular location that the people can't really leave and in being trapped there almost, I think the set itself becomes almost like a antagonist in a way. Like it right, just becomes, yeah. it kind of captures the emptiness and the isolating nature of that environment. Yeah, it, de- it definitely helps to like to add to the intensity because you can you really know the layout of what it is, and it's so small and so minimal that for at least for in in the autopsy of uh, Jane Doe, like there there's literally only one way in and out, mm-hmm. and they're kind of stuck there. And the thing, it's like there's multiple doors that you can leave. But at the same time, I feel like the environment does help to add more. It has its own character in a sense. A lot like yeah, this and, movie. I, and I mean, in the thing, one of the reasons why they can't run out into the wilderness is basically because like they'll freeze to death because they're in Antarctica. Right. And in this, there's an added layer of kind of just like the environmental factor of there's like this torrential downpour or storm that's knocking over trees and there's major, and there's major flooding and whatnot. So- to add on top of the fact that we get into a haunting, like there's this environmental factor that's keeping them there. Um, right. And I think that that just adds not only like an external threat, but at the same time, it flushes out the atmosphere more in that like when they're doing the autopsy early on and the lights start flickering and you can hear the thunder and the rain outside, it kind of just makes for a overall like very oppressive environment in a way that I think kind of prolongs that classic haunting atmosphere that you were talking about, Berto. Yeah, the environment does have, I feel like, back to what Max was saying earlier with the with the fact that they renew the outside of the building, the inside was still um, still very old. I kind of like that. I didn't even think about that when I was watching the movie. I was like, oh, they keep re- remodeling the outside, but the inside is still very old. And it, I, I like that now that I think about it. It's a really good connection between that and the character of Jane Doe, which she kind of keeps passing her, I guess her spirit keeps passing down to different dead people which eventually we find out that it goes to the dad. But um, I think I really, now that I think about it, it's, a, it's kind of a cool little, I guess, hidden hidden gem in there that I've never noticed before. Yeah, and I mean, something that I really appreciated more on a rewatch was Jane Doe as being not really this, I, her being as important to the other two characters in terms of just like the narrative. Like that she, originally I very much viewed her as just like an antagonist from the beginning or not even, she's more like just consequential to the haunting, obviously, Mm. but like on a rewatch kind of getting to understand and view her more as being like just as central to the film as the two uh, leads were. And the leads, which I didn't mention earlier, being Brian Cox and Emile Hirsch. Um, What did you guys think of their relationship as father and son? Because this was something else that I thought was really pivotal in terms of just like separating this from kind of the traditional haunting film. I think that their relationship I felt was pretty strong. And I don't know, I think it might be, you know, a two part thing where 
you know, Brian Cox and, and Hurst did a great job acting, you know, and then it also had to do with the writing. Um, there's definitely that sense of, um, you know, just, I mean, even just their body language and, you know, everything. Um, Tom, Brian's character seemed to be very proud of his son, very wanted, wanted him to be a part of, you know, this family legacy. Um, Austin didn't want to hurt his father. And, and I, I think they did a great job. I don't think at any point they were, it was unbelievable. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I saw the connection of the entire movie pretty much. I don't think there's a point of um, confusion or, or I question the relationship. What did you think, Berta? For me, it was, I don't know, like near, near the, the part where the girlfriend shows up, I kind of had a feeling of like Tom was kind of being held down by the fact that he wanted to make his dad happy just to mm-hmm. work there. For me, it kind of got that sense of like, I'm doing like he was going to go out on a date with his girlfriend, but he's like the body just got here. And it's like, I kind of want to like help out and I want to make sure that, you know, he's happy. And the dad, told, I think the dad told him like, you can like, why are you here? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, I feel like the inner Austin was kind of like, I want to be here with you. Like, I want to make sure that you're proud of what I'm doing, you know, and trying to yeah. help you out and help out the family business. So maybe just a certain sense of guilt because he knew that he was yeah. leaving eventually. Right. Yeah. That, 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 that's not something that he wanted to do for the rest of his life. So it's kind of like, I felt like he just kind of wanted to help out the dad while he could. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that those, their relationship is great because you feel this constant kind of like unresolved struggle between the two of them. And this mm. idea that like, there's a conversation that's looming in the air basically, and neither one of them is willing to address it. And that being his father, not dealing with the death of his mother uh, and not kind of just like grappling with that grief. And I think that that kind of is what really drives his father's dedication throughout the movie to like finishing the job that he starts because as things become progressively more and more unsettling when they further the autopsy of Jane Doe and start to unravel the mystery that comes with that, like he is unwavering his determination because I think if he ever stops working or moving on to the next body or the next clue, he kind of has to stop and like deal with that grief that he's dealing with. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like he has to kind of address it for the first time in a way that all indications are that he hasn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It seems like he's just working to cover up that pain. Yeah. Do you think, do you think his profession, um, being a a mortician, do you think that had to do with his unwillingness to, um, deal with death? Do you think that affected his opinion of death? Because there's a couple instances in the movie between Tom and Austin, um, where Tom said, it's just a corpse. It's just a body. It's nothing to it. And then Mm -hmm. Austin was like, no, there's, it used to be a person like this, this body is important to like the why is important. Like, why did this person die? And then Tom was like, no, it's not, it's not our job to figure out why. Um, and do you think that, that further, uh, Tom further pulled away from his, you know, grief, um, and then, you know, further straining their relationship just based on their profession. I think part of it has to do with the profession because it's like you can't look at all of these fucked up bodies as people because after Mm. a while, like you have to scab over eventually and kind of just have be desensitized to it after a certain point. Mm. And so I think that his son definitely kind of is representation of maybe like the new class that is actually more 
they're more willing to just reconcile with the fact that like these are people that had lives and at one point he even makes up like a backstory of the first person the first body that he does an autopsy on where he starts talking about this is a guy that ended up dying because nobody was there to kind of take care of him or they weren't there to help him in a moment's need and his father's like basically giving him tips for why you can't say you can't make up these narratives for people otherwise you'll go crazy doing this or you won't be able to last in this profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it seems like the dad, it's kind of like he's grown this thing where you have to detach yourself from the body, like from those corpses that you're seeing, like they're just bodies. They're just almost treat them like animals. Like there's, you can't be attached to them because if you start thinking about that, it'll literally mess with your head. Mm-hmm. And that's what it seems like his dad being in that industry for so long, he's been running the family business for so long. They kind of already grew that. And Austin is coming into this family business with his fresh mind and, I don't think he's had enough time to really detach himself to the fact that these were human beings before they died. At Mm. the same time, though, there's that scene that, again, when the first time I watched the movie, I didn't really appreciate when his cat basically gets attacked by a spirit um, Mm. and his father has to kill the cat and he puts it in the incinerator and his dad asks for a moment alone. And we learn that the reason that he has like such a emotional connection to this cat is that it belonged to his wife. And again, that is one of the first glimpses of, that we see that while his father's desensitized overall, I think, to dealing with bodies and seeing all these horrible things on a daily basis, at the same time, he still deals with a lot of the grief and things that he tells his son not to deal with in a way. Like mm. this idea that these are just bodies, these are just things, and yet he's attached an emotional investment to this cat, which is by his kind of view of the world, like a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he even, he even mentions that he hates the cat. And that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the only reason he mentions why it still... to the cop and yeah, but getting back to, uh, I, uh, before we started talking about the father and son, I mentioned Jane Doe. Um, I was surprised to learn that Jane Doe, who's played by, uh, Olin Kelly was she, they used her actual body for 80% of the scenes and the other 20% were, um, practical effects. I was surprised to learn that because I would have assumed given during the course of autopsying on her body, uh, they would have swapped her out a lot. Yeah. Just for a majority. Obviously, when they get to like cutting into her chest and breaking her ribs <laughs> apart, like they had to stand in for her actual body, clearly. But at the same time, I was just surprised to see that a majority of it was her. And that's why earlier I said she is essentially the third main character in that like it's a very physical performance for somebody that doesn't speak at all. And yet her presence kind of dictates the entire movie. Yeah. And I didn't, I thought it was, I thought it was almost like a cast, um, like, you know, a a dummy that, that they, they just Mm -hmm. used her likeness. Uh, I didn't realize it was actually her. Um, cause there were, there were a couple scenes, um, where it was like a minute movement, like her, I think her nostril flickered once or she blanked mm-hmm. or whatever. So I, I assume for those shots, um, she was there, but I didn't realize she sat on the table. Well, yeah. I mean, think There's about it. She's lying for, on the table <laughs> for hours. Yeah. yeah. You know, well, that's why I assumed it was a dummy most of the time. Cause it's like, how else would she not, you not notice her breathing right. and all these things. But they said yeah. one of the re- Andre, the director said one of the reasons why he wanted to cast her was, is that I guess she's big into yoga and uh-huh. so through her practicing of yoga, she knows how to do control shallow breathing, breathing yeah. okay. and how to control her breathing. So a majority of those scenes, it's her just on the slab breathing, but 
to the degree that we can't notice or they could edit around it very uh, easily. Right. right. Which yeah, that's I a mean, great, they did a great job with that. I it think. just speaks to the physicality of that role in a very untraditional way. Like when you think about physicality in right. movies, you think about actors doing all their own stunts and these crazy set pieces that have a lot of moving parts, but you kind of overlook the simplicity of just lying there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if not everybody could do that, like I don't know about you, I couldn't lie there. No. And I would just be <laughs> so focused on not moving that I would yeah. probably end up moving constantly. I laugh yeah. or say something or right. do something stupid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but I really enjoyed the autopsy stuff in terms of just like the mystery mm-hmm. that's tied into the autopsy. Because mm-hmm. for as traditional of a haunting film as this is and how it's presented, there is this very kind of like occult uh, yeah. discovery period where they start finding all of these injuries in her body and the, the realization that she's got broken wrists, she's got broken ankles, and yet there's no marks on her skin. There's no bruising, there's no cuts, there's no tears. And then it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle in that the deeper that they go, the more strange things, oddities that they find with her body. What did you guys think of that whole discovery period? I, I, I think that was probably one of my favorite parts of it. It's like the fact that she has been abused and she's been buried for, I don't know how long and she hasn't decomposed yet. I was like, mm-hmm. that was very interesting. I kind of liked that, that the fact that her organs were still like in place and they were almost healthy, but they were darkened, I guess. And like, mm-hmm. they were just, older and they they seem like they've been they've been through stuff but like or stuff has been added to it and i still i kind of like that part of the fact that there was certain mystery to it that she has been abused but yet there's no bruise there's no much there's no bleeding there's no sign of her being injured in any sense other than mm-hmm. the fact that her ankles were snapped and um but like yeah i thought it was kind of cool and i i really like the fact that for me personally i couldn't like if you tell me like i thought that was a dummy the whole time and the fact mm. that she did it, I thought that was kind of really great. And it kind of sticks out more. Now I think about it, like even the, their practical effect, like it looked just like her, like the mm-hmm. once they got the dummy, when she was all cut open, I was like, wow, that would have never been able to tell the difference personally. Right. And I love how gradual the scares are in matching kind of the pace of the autopsy yeah, because it begins with when, when the father does the Y cut on her chest and starts to dissect her. Like her body starts leaking blood everywhere. And yeah. obviously bodies are not supposed to do that after they've been, I think he said after 48 hours, they shouldn't. And yeah. so when Austin takes the blood sample and puts it in the cooler, he looks back and it's kind of leaked and the vial is rotting. And they just introduce these little oddities early on that even though the audience knows like shit is just going to get progressively worse. Right. It's nice to see that the scares in terms of the characters, it's like things they can overlook. Until and it's a series of little things they can overlook until you get to like the culminating event at the end of the movie when it's full blown haunting that they can no longer kind of these men of science, as it were, cannot explain away any of the oddities, especially like the father who is very much the naysayer from the beginning. Right. Yeah, I I thought you know as far as the pacing is concerned that the the physical discovery or. or the physical autopsy matched the pacing of the haunting. Um, you know, when they first bring Jane Doe in, that's when like the storm happened and it went, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember the, they had the radio on and the radio said, you know, clear sky is going to be a beautiful weekend. You know, everyone go outside or whatever. They brought Jane in and they started 
essentially, you know, the autopsy. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're going to have a flash storm. You know, the storm, everyone go back inside or whatever. And, you know, they opened her eyes. Then, like, the door starting and the refrigerator started opening. And, and mm-hmm. the more, you know, the deeper they got, the, the more intense they got. And so, like, it built this sense of suspense of um, what are they going to find next? And then what's going to happen, you know, in the bigger picture, what's going to happen next? Um, so I felt the autopsy was kind of um, a great writing tool to, to pace out the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, the autopsy also almost created chapters within the movie. Um, you know, they cut her open and then this happened. They broke her ribs and then that happened. And so, yeah, right. I, I felt that was a that was a very interesting way to control the pacing of the movie without it getting, you know, with, so to speak, without blowing its load too quick or without it being mm-hmm. one of these slow burn movies that, you know, takes forever and then everything happens in the last 20 minutes. Yeah, it strikes a really great balance. And I really like all of the kind of strange occult things that they start to uncover about the body the further they investigate where they have the strange bleeding early on. But then they start to find when they get to dissecting, like Berto had said, you see that her lungs are blackened as if I think the father says she would have had to smoke for 100 years to get lungs that look like this. Or they start finding they found a flower inside of one of her her intestines, I think. And also they find like slash marks on her uh, organs. And they say, well, if these were surgical, there would be some sign of it on her skin. Like she would have scars of some sort. And so just to see these little oddities that they try to explain away, and then you get to the part where they find a piece of paper with her tooth rolled up into it or a cloth that has like scripture writing on it. And then eventually when they start to sever her skin, they see that like there's tattooing on the inside of her skin, like lots of these creepy little moments that I don't know. It just, it takes something traditional like an autopsy and it applies such a horror element to it that doesn't feel overbearing it's just kind of very disturbing mm-hmm. in a way that i wasn't expecting that really yeah. sticks with me even on a rewatch yeah it was yeah brutal. i think it was really <laughs> yeah. gruesome yeah that's what i found at least to me it was like oh i was i was eating lunch when i was watching it <laughs> poor poor uh, lunch movie yeah. yeah it was definitely a bad i was like oh it's gonna be an autopsy it couldn't be that bad and then now we get to the part where she's getting cut open. I was like, Geez. I, th- I think I like that stuff too, because it's so practical reliant. Yeah. And not to say that like when we see the bodies that are basically reincarnated later on, those are pra- obviously practical, but those are more jump scare oriented. And I think mm-hmm. that when it's focusing on the autopsy scares, it's more just engrossing because it feels like the whole thing is played straight up to a certain point where this feels like, Oh, this could, what if this could actually happen? It's not so overtly supernatural that you could immediately dismiss it because obviously when the corpses start walking around later, you're like, okay, this is clearly like an in your face haunting moment, which is fine. And I think for the most part it works. But again, when you're kind of just trapped in that morgue room, the main uh, morgue room and they've got the body and they're kind of cutting into it and they're finding all these oddities. It's like, oh shit, could this actually happen? Mm -hmm. Just little moments like that. I don't know. They stick with me really uh, in a way that like, when the bodies jump out later is kind of just more of what you would expect from a kind of mainstream haunting movie. But if you guys want to get into uh, some of our favorite moments. Yeah, do it. Let's do it. One of my favorite callbacks 
constantly is the reflective mirror that's in the corner of the room. I love mm. how they use that. They introduce it during the initial tour through the morgue just to give us kind of like the lay of the land. And then there's that scene where Austin sees a figure in the reflection of it. And he kind of creeps his head around the corner and there doesn't see anything. That's kind of like the fake out. And then later when they're trying to board the elevator, they look in it again and there's a body standing there. And then the body comes closer and it's kind of incorporating also the bell ringing that uh, yeah. his father tells him and the girlfriend about where they used to bury people with bells on their wrists because sometimes they couldn't tell if they were still alive or not. And mm-hmm. so just incorporating all these little things that have been hinted at early in the film into an actual moment where it's like being used in a scare, I think is pretty satisfying. Yeah, no, that that's definitely, yeah. I For me, my favorite scene was once we get into the movie, like when the smoke starts building up and you hear there's like a, someone coming at them, but they can't really see and you can hear the bell walk in. It's like, it's one of the uh, people that was already dead, obviously. And he has the bell tied up to his uh, pinky toe or whatever. And mm. he's kind of walking. I thought that was kind of a creepy moment when they're trying to get out of there and they're like, oh shit, like it's coming for us. That mm. kind of gave me like a little anxiety moment because they couldn't <laughs> get the elevator open. But at the same time, like this thing's coming, it's moving towards them as the smoke keeps moving towards them too. So it's like, you never really get to see what's coming at them, but they know that you can hear the footsteps and the bell at the same time. I thought that was a pretty cool scene. They did a great job at that. Yeah. yeah and also, because we didn't see, it's the body of the guy that was poisoned, but then somebody shot him in the face or he shot himself in the face. Yeah. So he has no face, but we never see it. Because just as the girlfriend's about to pit, take off the uh, covering, the boyfriend yeah. basically scares her and then they just move on. And so we get brief glimpses of the guy's face after he shot himself mm-hmm. uh, because the light starts flickering. Right. And so just the way that that's kind of like sparingly used really makes that scene that much more intense. It's not just the bell ringing. It's like, oh, shit, you can't look away because you right. almost you have this morbid curiosity, almost like you want to see what that guy's jacked up face looks like. How about you, Max? Just um, the way I, I, I appreciated not really seeing um, the ghosts or the zombies pretty much throughout the entire movie. We get, like mm-hmm. Jay said, the lights flickering and you see the guy, you know, with a gunshot wound. And then when he uh, when they're trying to uh, get open the door with the axe, um, the woman with her face sewn up, you get kind of like mm-hmm. that instant like jump scare. But I felt it was more unnerving hearing that bell walking through the hallway than if, you know, we saw, you know, the, the bell walking through the hallway or the silhouette in the smoke. I felt that was more, that was scarier um, than actually seeing the bodies and, you know, seeing the corpses themselves because just not knowing what they are, like what was, I, I think, a, a more powerful effect than. You know, for instance, if it was like a typical zombie movie where, you know, they had these corpses walking around. Um, So I thought the director did pretty well doing that. And it led to a more impactful scene or scenes. Yeah, it's so sparingly that they show you the monster, which Mm -hmm. I really love in that there isn't that much variation between the three corpses that are wandering around the morgue, basically, that become reanimated because of the autopsy that they've been doing on Jane Doe. And I think that that being so restrained in that regard, I think really, again, kind of speaks to the pacing of the movie in that, like you said, Max, he doesn't blow his load too early in terms of scares and that it plays out really well in a nice way that makes the back end of the film flow in a way that's like more overtly scary in your face. But it's nice because they spent the first 
half or three fourths of the movie kind of developing that atmosphere that these scares feel right at home in. My my favorite scene would be in the beginning, or the, my favorite sequence would be in the beginning where they first started the autopsy, and there's this almost juxta, juxta, juxtaposition between uh, the father uh, uh, Tom starting the autopsy and then um austin goes like they hear a noise outside the of the operating room and so austin goes to look for it and he's looking at all the doors and that's when they discover you know the dead cat or the dying cat and that's kind of austin looking for the more spiritual as you, as you you know the movie progresses austin believes almost immediately that Jane Doe has to do is directly connected to all this spooky shit that's going on. The father's like, no, it's just a body, whatever. Um, and so that, that foreshadowing moment where Austin believes something bigger is going on than what it is. And his father's mm-hmm. more like, Oh no, don't worry about it. It's, it's fine. It's fine. It kind of shows again, it reinforces the contrast between old school, new school. Not yeah. only does the son kind of apply all of this, personality to the bodies and he starts thinking about the backstories and mm-hmm. these are people these are not just corpses he's also more willing to believe the suit there's a supernatural reason for what is happening and like you said the connection between jane doe and the haunting and again he's the one that is, says it i think he says it twice like we should just get out of here yeah and right. again the father because he's so determined in finishing what he starts is like no we're gonna finish this job or he even gives him an out at one point yeah he says oh you can go you don't have to stay. Yeah. And so that kind of just ties into their larger relationship as a whole. Yeah. But then a follow-up, sorry, real quick. When after, I think the bodies were out of the fridges and like the lightning strikes, the lights go out for a second. The father looks at him and is like, let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like yeah. the real, that realization, like we need, like, yeah. like shit got yeah. real. Like we need to get out of here. Um, he finally I, reaches a moment where he's like, okay, I can't yeah, discount he's anything like, we, else. Yeah, we gotta get the fuck, <laughs> we, let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so another scene that I think really stands out is the scene at the end when the father is making the, basically the plea to, uh, to Jane Doe to spare his son and instead to take him basically as a sacrifice. And then we get that scene where it's this really awesome kind of montage cutting between Jane Doe and the father where Jane Doe's body is kind of sealing itself back up and it's essentially healing itself. But then we see that all of her injuries are being transferred over to the father. And so his, like his wrists start getting broken, his ankles get broken. He kind of, his lung, you can tell that his lungs are being blackened like hers because he starts exhaling, just smoke Mm -hmm. constantly. And it's a really great scene that kind of ties into the twist of the movie in that Jane Doe is not, a witch, she's basically, she didn't become a witch or she wasn't previously a witch. She became a witch because of all of the uh, punishment and torment that she sustained while she was basically uh, living during the Salem witch trial eras, which I thought was a cool twist because the entire time you, you assume she's like a witch or she's the devil. Yeah. And then you find out that being falsely persecuted is what basically created her into com- becoming a witch. Right. Yeah. What'd you guys think of that twist? I thought it was, I thought it was an awesome twist. Um, at first I, you know, when they were, you know, doing the autopsy that she was almost like a human sacrifice and that mm-hmm. the, all the things that were going on around her was uh, whatever demon they summoned 
trying to prevent, you know, essentially using her as a gateway into this, um, into the world. And then, you know, as they keep going down, you know, further through it and they make the realization that she was, she wasn't, she, she became a witch through these occult rituals almost. Um, and that she's almost like a living ghost or like a physical manifestation of, of a ghost. Cause in a lot of these haunting movies, um, the ghost is, you know, um, a spirit or a person who was mistreated and then they died. Whereas she was mistreated and then she still kind of lived in some sort of, you know, mummy curse of the mummy type of deal. And, and that's kind of, mm-hmm. um, I guess the, the simplest way to, to explain it. It's almost, you know, the mummy's curse, but instead of a mummy, it, it's a witch. And, um, yeah, that tying to, you know, the father pleading with her to try to, you know, save his son. Um, I think there is an, the, the sense of denial that goes through a lot of these horror movies where they're like, no, it's fine. We can do it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. There was that sudden, like I spoke about earlier, the whole, like, we need to get the, like, we need to get the fuck out of here moment. And then yeah. since that point on, it was like, all they thought about was escaping and, you know, um, Tom was trying to protect Austin, you know, try to get him out, try to protect him, everything else like that. And when, you know, and then they realized that she was, you know, this young girl who was mistreated and, and then the sense of empathy, um, for her that, that Tom started to develop and, and she wasn't just a corpse anymore. It was a person who was mistreated and accused in that moment of, um, it was like, no, she can't be a witch, which is our real, they're all innocent. You know, she's not a real witch. And then the realization was she became like, they made her into the monster that she is. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I, I did a little research on, on the, the director. He also did troll hunter. Um, mm-hmm. and I think he did a good job tying in. I don't know if you guys seen troll hunter, um, I've not. I've not, right. not. So essentially, it's it's uh, a found footage movie. Um, he it's a documentary on a guy who quote unquote hunts trolls. You know, he's an expert on trolls. And so, uh, mainstream media is trolls are monsters. They're terrible, whatever else. Um, but throughout the movie, you learn that you know trolls are just um, an animal. You know, a naturally occurring animal, and they're part of nature, and they're and so there need to be a source of pity for them. And so I think he did a good job in both those movies. You know, you feel there's like maybe 15 minutes. I felt bad for Jane Doe um, because he was tortured Mm -hmm. and and you kind of feel bad for the monster for a little while. And likewise, for troll hunter, you know, I felt bad for the trolls that they are misunderstood, they're mistreated and everything. And so I, I don't know if that's like his writing style or his directorial style, but I felt that was an interesting twist as well. Like you felt he went from a demonic entity to someone to be pitied and felt bad for. And then you go back to, nah, she's, she's still evil. (laughs) I mean, it's smart because again, in making Jane Doe feel like an extension of the protagonists, she has an arc just like them, even though she doesn't have any dialogue Mm -hmm. and it's more of an emotional arc because they said even the – I was listening to a roundtable with Brian Cox and Emil Hirsch. They were saying that 
initially going into the movie and making it, they treated her like a thing, basically, mm. and not like a character, which, I mean, that fits for the beginning of the movie because she's a body. And so this idea that they're supposed to be desensitized to dead people for a certain extent and view them as things, it makes sense. But then in the more that we start to know her and understand who she is in her history, it really becomes about the fact that this is somebody that you sympathize with, even if they're already dead, because you learn all and you see the firsthand uh, result of what she endured when she was alive and you build sympathy off of that. And then of course she still ends up wrecking shop mm-hmm. and yeah. killing everybody right. uh, and furthering the haunting and, and breaking this kind of faux promise to the father that she'll let him live. And I just wasn't expecting that. And I think I appreciated it a lot more on a rewatch, just how emotionally invested you become in a character that doesn't speak once and doesn't, Rea- and you don't see them like physically moving or reacting to things. Yeah. Um, I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I, I personally, I, I did like the twist. I thought it was kind of cool. I wasn't expecting the fact that she was still going to end up killing everybody in the room. Like she was still going to mm-hmm. kill the dad and the, or, and the son, which I really, I was, I wasn't expecting that. So it was kind of a shocker, which I kind of liked. Um, but I really did like the twist. The fact that she was like, you know, she, the, the dad pleaded with her and, she was like, sure, let me take your body. And then it's like, at the same time, it's like, no, screw you. I'm still going to kill everybody because I don't care. Like I got, I still suffered and I, and I went through this pain and basically it's like, she's getting revenge on everything that happened to her. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, I did that, that twist for a second had me confused. I was like, cause they found one, once they found the kid, the kid's body, I was like, there's no blood. So in, in my head, I was like, there was no blood on his shirt. So I was like, in my head, I was like, was that all in his head? That's what I was kind of mm. confused about in the mm. ending. No. Did the cranial test where they, you know, sawed her, you know, opened her skull up and like took the brain tissue and they, they're like, oh shit, like, no, she's still alive. And it's like, that's impossible. How she, like, we, we took out her heart. Like, <laughs> there's no way. And, yeah. Right. And I don't know if you guys noticed it, but the facial expression of Jane Doe kind of changes through the movie as they start to discover who she is. Um, it's not, it, it's, it's something very subtle and I, it may have been me looking for it, but it goes from, you know, like the actual cadaver, her eyes are open. She looks kind of in pain to kind of a smug look. Um, not, not, mm-hmm. I don't know how to put it. There, she almost looks satisfied. I don't know if you. Is it less of her face is changing or it's more the perspective in which her face is being shot? It might be a point of both because they do move um, that block from behind her back to right behind mm-hmm. her head. And it just, it just seems like it almost seems like the character changes um, based on how she was shot. And it, it may be due to the fact that, you know, I understand more about her, the, the characters understand more about her. And so things may have changed, especially when, you know, the, the father pretty much offers himself, you know, for, for some closure as the point of, you know, take me as revenge. I'm sorry for everything that happened. Let me help you. And then, you know, to me, it seemed like her facial expression shifted or she was starting to shift, um, especially in the back of the, the ambulance at the end of the movie. Yeah. So I think something also that I didn't really appreciate was the sympathy that you build for her character and then going straight into kind of just being terrified of her. Yeah. It really plays into just how much of a gut punch the ending mm-hmm. is. And it's an ending that I still, that 
I still really, really enjoy mm. uh, in that it's kind of this mean spirited ending where we think that the father has made this bargain that basically saves his son. And then we hear when the son is about to climb through the, the uh, shutter mm, yeah. basement door, uh, we hear the cop's voice and then he keeps trying to open the door and he's like, it won't budge. And then you hear the cop start singing the song that was on the radio. That was like creepy. That's the, yeah. that's the perfect creepy. Yeah. Oh fuck. Yeah. Like Houston, we have a problem moment where we know his fate before we, it even plays right. through. Right. And that, of course, he turns around and he sees his mummified father behind him and he falls off the ledge. That's probably one of my favorite kind of. I wouldn't say it's a twist, but just like a gut punch ending mm-hmm. where you have the rug pulled out from under yeah. you because you've been led to believe. Somebody's given a second lease on life, essentially, and then it's just completely taken away right. from them. Right. Yeah. I thought that mu- that music, the radio being played every time they're like doing the autopsy on her. I thought that was the creepiest yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And that definitely at the end, when the kid's like trying to open the door, and he the cop goes from saying we we can help you or something like that to like singing that song. I was like, holy shit, that's that's very creepy. I thought that I probably that's probably one of the scariest things for me about the whole movie was just that subtle of like. There's, it seems like such a happy song, but when you start listening to the mm-hmm. lyrics, it's very like creepy and dark. Yeah. And for me, it, it reminds me of like a cult. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like something a cult would sing before everybody drinks the Kool-Aid. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I feel for me, it's like, I wasn't a big fan of the movie in general, but like that little moment of like having the old school 1950s creepy music, kind of like Jeepers Creeper kind of thing mm-hmm. that kind of freaked mm-hmm. me out. I really like that, that they, they added that to the movie. But I mean, for me overall, like I thought it was, it was all right. And now that like we're talking about, it, I, I feel like I missed a lot of these subtle moments. Like Max was explaining, like her changing their face. I feel like I need to go back and rewatch it. But overall, I mean, for me, it was like, it just didn't do it. I, I'm still, I was still confused about the end because like, was it all in the kid's head? Because at least, or maybe they, they screw up in the editing because his shirt was covered in blood. And then like once they found the body on the floor, his shirt was, no, there was no blood on it. So I was kind of confused as to what, what the situation it's never explained but i think it ties into this idea that the body is erasing all the evidence that something strange happened and something that i picked up on the second time i watched that i didn't on the first time is that he's all excited that he's basically like his father made this deal with the demon he's free to go essentially Mm -hmm. just because he's free of the demon though all the evidence suggests that he killed his father and his girlfriend right so even if he gets out of there alive in all likelihood, even if we didn't have the ending that we ended up with, he's going to go to prison because right. he stabbed his father and his girlfriend is dead and his fingerprints are all over the axe. And it's right. like, nobody's going to believe anything he has to say about right. a demon killing them. Right. So it's kind of, a, it feels into this kind of just nastiness of the movie in that it's very uncaring or not willing to lend the sympathy to the protagonist that we were extending to the antagonist earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. And, it's, oh, and to answer Berto's question, um, it, and I guess part to what Jay was saying that she was erasing all the evidence or kind of resetting herself when the dad offered himself up as a sacrifice and she was kind of projecting her injuries onto him. Um, the blood that when, when she bled out, you know, the initial cut, it moved back into her body. You saw it kind of reversing up and out of the drain. And so she could have just, mm-hmm. I guess, reabsorbed the blood. Up that blood. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. So, and, and you see like her organ, you see the scarring on her organs is disappearing. Yeah. Right. And obviously like her chest cavity starts to healed. fuse back together. Right. 
And I mean, we saw that when they lit the body on fire, that all the evidence that they collected is gone. Right. The camera is burnt. The photos are burnt. There's the scribblings on the chalkboard, but there's no that con- could be whatever. Yeah, there's like, no context to it. Yeah. And I thought, exactly. There's no concrete evidence. Right. And I thought there's a good, um, you know, the final sequence when the sheriff comes and he has a deputy with him and she's like, you know, what the hell happened here? Like, did he do this? And the sheriff is like, no, I've, I've known this family for 20 years. Something, something else has gone on. Like every time, you know, this is the second time where we've walked into, you know, a mass, um, walked to a massacre and she's okay. You know, the body is untouched in the center of everything and everyone else around her is dead. So get her out. Get it. Like, I don't yeah. get her out of my yeah. county. She's someone else's problem now. Um, right. Yeah. And so I like that ending too, that, de- that decision to bounce the body to the next county. Yeah. It's like the domino effect, essentially. Nobody's, the buck doesn't stop with anybody. So you could potentially see this occur in the next town, yeah, the town after like, that, and so how forth. How many and times it's just this endless cycle. already? You know, like, right? You know, I yeah. guess they said um, the date on the cloth was like 1693, and and I, mm-hmm. I I'm assuming the um, the year of the movie is you know pretty close, you know, modern time. So 300 years, she's yeah. just been bouncing around from county to county. Mm-hmm. I love too that they have that moment where I'm pretty sure the movie takes place in. New York or New Jersey because they reference New Jersey when one of their hypotheses is that she's basically like a human sex trafficking mm-hmm. victim. And the father says that he's seen uh, injuries like that before associated with uh, human trafficking. And then when the son deciphers the uh, the cloth parchment that has the scribblings on it, he's just like, New England. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. New England is the root of all yeah. evil, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> As a New Englander, that really stood out yeah. to me is just being like, this perception of New England just being this this place of ancient evil. Yeah. <laughs> but I like that last scene also where the body is in the car. Mm. And it does kind of, because when I watched it the first time, I was trying to decide whether part of this was a hallucination or not. And then the music starts playing on the radio. Mm. And then we see the body and we see the toe and it moves and it rings the bell as the last little kind of just nod to this idea that this is very much a haunting and there's no mistaking whether or not that really happened or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like for, for me, I was really hoping more of to see her move at least once. That's mm-hmm. what kind of bugged me out the whole time. Like she was just very still and like obviously her spirit was hunting everything else around her. But I was kind of hoping that had she like moved or there would have been a scene where they go back into the autopsy room and her body's just gone. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. holy shit, like what happened? Like we just cut her open and she's fully open now she's missing like what's going on i don't know for me it really bugged me that the fact that she was just sitting there still and there was all this chaos going around her and she just didn't seem like to move it really bugged me out it, and what's strange you know i guess i think the opposite um that yeah. i think if she was moving around um or had a more physical uh more physical influence i think it would have turned this into more like a a more typical haunting movie. I think the mystery mm-hmm. of, I mean, you know, from the beginning that she has to do with it, but like how much, you know, making her the epicenter of, of this, but her not moving at all. And it's kind of her playing possum. I mean, she is playing possum. I mean, she, she's yeah. Yeah. dead, but she's not actually dead. Um, I thought, right. I thought that worked as far as 
um, a mystery element to to her part in it. But if she just got up at the table, then you're like, all right, she's the deal. You know, like she's walking around with her chest, you know, the chest cavity open. And yeah, it, I think it would have been. I a think that that movie. is what in making her just serve as a cadaver, albeit a haunted one. It really does force the movie to focus on the autopsy elements of the movie, which I think gives this movie its entire personality mm-hmm. in that it really does differentiate itself from a lot of other haunting jump scare movies in that there's this kind of discovery period. It's almost like a CSI kind of subplot where they're literally picking apart her body and finding these clues to give some indication of largely what happened to her um, and to intercut that with the jump scares that I think are probably the weaker parts of the movie, just in terms of they're very much along the lines of what you would expect. But at the same time, I think that when you kind of have this new angle and you combine them with something that's very familiar, it makes for something that's more unique because I would much rather have the autopsy stuff and the mystery involved in that section than more jump scares or kind of like you guys said, her sitting up and her chest cavity is all exposed. And it's like, well, they've already cut her to pieces. So seeing her walking around with parts of her cut off, it's like not going to have the same impact. I feel like. So Berto, did you, what was your expectation? Were you expecting something closer to like the conjuring or the shine, yeah, yeah. conjuring or the shining, like a more involved? No, I, yeah. I felt more of the conjuring style. It was just like creepy demonic stuff. Mm-hmm. I wasn't that, really like, I don't know. It just, for me, it wasn't as creepy as I would I would have imagined having like, kind of like a conjuring style to it. Like to me, it was like, yeah, they're dead bodies, but the bodies also like the ones that were walking around didn't really seem so creepy. Like the lady did have her eyes and mouth sawed together, and the other guy had a hole in his face, but it wasn't that creepy uh, to me at least. And I felt like there was that one scene when they're in the uh, in the, the where they run into that room, and the dad's checking himself in the. Uh, He's like he'll, trying to heal himself up because he cut in, himself and he's like washing his hand and he sees a shadow in the uh, in in the in behind the sheets in the in the bathroom and it sounds like dad and then it's like there's nothing there and he kind of takes a deep breath and I was like well something bad is about to happen because he's like yeah. too relaxed like I just seemed <laughs> that's to me, a fake out yeah that scene was like very predictable I was like all right he's he seems too relaxed something's gonna go down and then I was like he gets pulled in and the door gets shot and it's like well that was kind of predictable in that sense but. For me, I would yeah, I would have looked more into like a Conjuring style, which is probably one of my least favorite. It's funny that you mentioned the Conjuring because that was the inspiration for the director to make a horror movie. Oh right? yeah, uh, to make this. Yeah, like the director watched the Conjuring when it came out, and he told his producers that, or his agent rather, that he wants to find a script to make a horror movie in a similar sense to that. This mm-hmm. idea that there's a haunting of some sort. Um, yeah, and this script really was what drew in all the talent to it. Cause like we said at the beginning, this is a pretty small budget horror movie that I think is all about atmosphere in a lot of ways, rather than a bunch of in your face kind of special effects. And so the script itself was what attracted Brian Cox. I mean, I mean, Emil Hirsch is a great actor, but Brian Cox has a talent that I think he's of a level that what you would assume somebody with his pedigree of acting would overlook horror Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. And one of the things that he said that drew him to the project so much was his relationship with Emile's Hirsch character and how it's this very conflict heavy, but you don't see a lot of arguments between the two of them. Right. It's kind of like the elephant in the room that neither of them is willing to yeah, address, more body, which body language is something. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's all you can kind of read into the nuances of their performances that there's 
a conflict there, and yet they never really have a big blow up moment between the two of them. Yeah, so, yeah. For me, for me, I felt like it would have been more scary had we seen like, like for me, those those dead bodies that were walking around, just like it just felt like a zombie movie. Like they were just zombies. Mm. Had they been like, had they those things been able to like kind of crawl on the wall or do some kind of crazy supernatural kind of thing? I felt like it would have been more creepier, other than just have them like walk around and make noise and just have that sense of you're being followed. I would have been more scary like, for me. I feel like they could have shown more, which is not something that I usually say, mm. but it is an R-rated movie. So they could have shown more if they wanted to. Yeah. And especially once you see it at the, be- uh, once they start becoming more frequently shown in the third act of the movie, you could show them completely at that point. Cause we hadn't seen them. Right. So I agree that if they had maybe tweaked the, we'll call them zombies for the moment. Uh, if they had tweaked the zombies a little bit, they could have been more effective. Cause you're right. I think they were pretty limited in what they did with them. Right. Um, that's probably has to do with the budget of the movie. But if you're going to go to the trouble of having them like have their eyes and mouth sewn and all that, like you could probably think of one or two more disturbing things to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say that also the emphasis on practical effects in this that are so good, they really make the, the moments of CGI like be kind of an eyesore, like with the fire. Yeah. yeah. I don't know the fight. It's a nitpick thing, but like when he, they set the body on fire, the fire just looked so incredibly fake compared to yeah. the stellar practical effects and whatnot. That kind of just stood out to me. Yeah. Like that one moment of CGI kind of, for me, it kind of like ruined the whole part of the movie for me. Cause it was like, you have this, like, like you said, it was a small budget. So I'm sure there's CGI was very minimal, but I feel like everything just seems so practical that it, it was kind of nice to see that, especially nowadays where you have everything's mostly CGI and it's much cheaper, I guess. But um, mm. to me, yeah, that one scene was kind of kind of gnarly. It's definitely not my favorite one. Any other moments that you guys wanted to touch upon that we forgot to? Uh, uh, I think so. That I think the girlfriend getting chopped up that was kind of I was yeah, expecting yeah. that. That was kind of a curveball for me. That I was, thought he was just kind of swinging at something, and his dad was going to get yanked in there. Like he was just going to mm-hmm. get pulled out out of the elevator, and then then you find out that she's just literally chopped in half or mm. not chopped in half, but she's got cut on yeah. her chest. I thought, him. so I, that might've been, you know, like Berger was saying that he's expecting, um, you know, like that bathroom scene, he's expecting the, the dad to get kind of beat up or something that's going to happen. I kind of expected, I didn't expect the girlfriend to be there, but I expected, mm. you know, it to be an illusion that, you know, maybe it's the sheriff, but it wasn't, you know, the, the dead body that they were anticipating. Um, yeah. yeah. Putting the ax in the girlfriend's chest. <laughs> that was definitely <laughs> kind of an oh shit moment, but you know, yeah, it, right. It, it, I, I'm saying I was kind of expecting it, you know, cause they're building up yeah. such suspense for that one scene. Um, I was like, what, what's the twist going to be? And yeah, mm. I was satisfied with the twist, but. Um, that scene is a great example of, I would say it's pretty ballsy for a director to lean so hard into having so little compassion for his characters. Mm-hmm. I feel like in a lot of horror movies, even in R-rated ones, there's always this you don't want to you don't want to alienate the audience too much that all of a sudden they start rooting against the director because the director's doing these horrible things to characters that they've spent the entire movie investing you in. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, I think it really works for me just because it kind of complements the overall nastiness of the movie and this yeah. kind of unapologetic nature that I usually fault a lot of. It's mostly PG-13 movies that reel it in a little too much, but 
I was even for being an R-rated movie. I was surprised how unapologetic he was yeah. and what he did to the characters. You know, as far as the girlfriend was concerned, I, I wasn't too invested in her character because uh, we only mm-hmm. saw her for maybe five minutes. And I thought him, I forget. I, I think the father killing the killing her um, created a new level of separation between the father, you know, between the father and the son. Yeah. Um, because there was can't think of anything else that would uh, drive more of a wedge between two characters. Right, yeah. you know, you put an axe in my girlfriend's chest, <laughs> you know, and, and then <laughs> yeah. um, just that that tension between them that's already in the room. You know, I think Tom knows that Austin's going to be leaving soon. You know, there's something there, and then um, you know the mother and now the girlfriend, and so there it goes from they're still trying to survive, but now you know, Austin's brokenhearted. And that, yeah. I think that segue into that segue into talking about the mother, which Tom eventually just kind of brushes off. Um, I think that was a pretty, very anxiety inducing moment. For me, yeah. I felt like that moment, like when he, when they, when you find out that the girlfriend got killed for me, like in the movie, I was like, well, now is this all in their head? Are they hallucinating? Because how does she get in here? Because they're literally trying to get out, and there's only two ways: the elevator or that door. And it's like, for me, I was the whole time. I was like, after that scene, I was like, well, I feel like now they're probably hallucinating because it's all in their head. Because how did she get in here? They've been trying to get out of here for this whole time, and it's like, well, was she either stuck in here or will like something happen? So I was like, for me, I was kind of confusing at that point. I was like trying to think. It's like, well, they must be hallucinating. There's no way this could be real. I feel like it's one of those things where the spirit is controlling everything, basically. Hmm. So it's convenient that there's a storm because they can discount a lot of things that happen. Just blame it on the storm. But in reality, the spirit has been awoken, especially when they cut up in her body, that it can control things. So the idea that anything can happen, essentially, at that point, it's all up to the spirit and they can manipulate all these different factors so they can start to do things to you that you would never expect because it's like, well, the power's out, so of course there's nobody else in the building when, in actuality, the spirit can allow anything to happen. Right. right. So he, they kind of, they touched on it very briefly. Um, so he, um, Austin told his girlfriend to come back to, come back and get him, you know, if he does, she doesn't hear from him in a while. And so the reason why they go to the elevator in the first place is because they hear the elevator door open. They hear the elevator hit the, you know, get to the bottom floor and open back up. And then they say, Oh, the elevator, let's go. The elevator still works. And so, you know, perhaps the spirit knew that his girlfriend came back, let the elevator Mm -hmm. work. So she would come down and then, you know, manipulated their perception enough to, um, Killer, pretty much. It's good. <laughs> that was a good. <laughs> I think that was a good, good character development moment. I felt. Yeah. Yeah, I think that this is one of those movies that gets overlooked in that it is very traditional, like Berto said, in terms of just the setup for a haunting movie, and yet there is this added layer of death to the characters and the development of those characters that I think gets overlooked a lot. And even I overlooked it the first time I watched it, and it just makes for a much more engaging take and a kind of the CSI stuff, like I said, is a more unique take on a very conventional kind of uh, haunting film. Yeah. But I think this is a great kind of 
introductory to horror movie again in that it is very easy to kind of just like summarize what it is. But then in summarizing something that's so simplistic, I think there's a lot of room for it to surprise people in a way that they probably aren't expecting. Yeah. I think there's a lot of points that you can pull apart. Um, since you didn't, you know, you don't really focus on so much of the, pra- you know, they're definitely well done practical effects, but it's not, mm-hmm. you know, a movie with three or four settings or, you know, a bunch of characters or a bunch of history and lore behind it. Um, yeah. I think he does a good job in doing almost, you know, character building, world building and history all in, I, I don't know how long the movie is, but it's, it's like 90 minutes. I, I think, think, yeah, I think a little longer. very efficient. And what it did. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with that singular location. Again, coming back to that, just the idea that you're able to tell such a multi-layered story and have multiple locate, like you said, there's not three or four locations or in terms of different locations, but there is kind of like this singular location that's rich in several different, like differing environments and whatnot. They're not necessarily different locations, but at the same time, you can tell, keep telling the same story in a unique way and have it bleed out into these different areas of the, uh, the morgue. But I, uh, I really appreciated having you guys on to talk about the autopsy of Jane Doe. Yeah. yeah. Fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Um, I'm hoping in the next time we'll find one that Berto enjoys a little bit more, <laughs> right. but uh, getting used to having more people on just so that we can get more conflicting opinions. Cause I think that makes for some pretty uh, interesting conversations, yeah. but I appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks man. Yeah. Thanks man. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.